welcome back to the Ethnos New Brunswick podcast. As we continue on our journey of holistic transformation in Highland Park in New Brunswick, we have arrived at the final conversation in our series about rest, and Yukon Chu will introduce you to our guest speaker. Well, hey, this Sunday, as I mentioned, uh, we're wrapping up our rest series uh, with a unique and special talk on anxiety and rest. And we have the special opportunity uh, to have uh, Professor Jim Hart to be here with us from the Rutgers School of Social Work. Uh, many of you are aware that uh, we do have a partnership with the Rutgers School of Social Work. In fact, we this year have four MSW interns, Masters of Social Work students, who are doing their internships with us right here at Ethnos. And so we've been doing this now. This is our third year doing this. And so we really believe it's so important to work together with other entities in our city to see the holistic transformation of our city. And so to be able to work with the Rutgers School of Social Work is, is a big deal for us. And better yet, to be able to have uh, one of the professors here come and share with us on some really important mental health issues in our community, we think this is just so crucial. Uh, some of you remember Professor Jim Hart. He was with us earlier this year talking about trauma and pain and how we can find God and join in the spiritual transformation God has for us in trauma and pain. And it was a powerful talk. You can look at it online and get, it, get, get that in your ear and just be blessed by that message. Uh, today, Jim is here to lead us in a conversation on anxiety, rest, and our spiritual journey. So let's give it for Professor Jim. And uh, yeah. Well, grace and peace and uh, good afternoon to all of you. I certainly want to thank Ethnos Church for having me back. It's great to be back with all of you. I certainly want to thank Pastor Yukon for inviting me back. You know, when you get invited back to speak at places, it says something. It doesn't say everything. Like, it might say, let's give them one more chance to get it right. But all kidding aside, it's, uh, it's great to be back here. I know the last time I was here, I went way too long, and I just heard you have lunch plans, so I intentionally trim down the message to make it a much shorter version of, of what it could be. But I do, uh, do want to be mindful of your time and the things that you have going on after the service is over. Uh, certainly allow me to do some housekeeping, allow me to acknowledge my senior pastor, Bishop George Seawright, uh, at the Abundant Life Family Worship Church. I uh, thank him for releasing me. I literally walked down the street from 259 George Street to be with all of you. And as soon as I'm done, I'll go back uh, and finish our services that are going on there. And I always have to acknowledge my wife, Yatunde. Um, she's home with our three boys, Samuel, Daniel, and Gabriel, and hopefully they're not giving her the business at the moment. Hopefully they're cooperative and paying attention, but I certainly want to thank them for their support, their love, um, and what they offer for me. Before we move any further, certainly let's pray. God, we are forever grateful and thankful for your everlasting kindness, goodness, mercy, and grace. God, we pray that you would give us the strength in our body and the peace in our mind and the calmness in our spirit so we would not only hear your word, but we would receive and apply it to our life. May everything that's done and said in this moment point us back to you, and may all of us experience your love, your security, and your peace like never before. It's in the name that's above every name, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. So as Pastor Yukon said, you guys are been doing a series on rest and resting in God's presence, resting in God's peace. So he asked me to come and talk to you about really the opposite of peace, which would be anxiety. And how do you wrestle with anxiety? What are the 
uh, fundamental steps you can take to address anxiety in your life. And how many of you know if you don't properly understand anxiety and know how to address it, that it can certainly rob you of God's peace in your life and rob you of God's uh, joy. So my hope is that I'll take both my clinical background of being an MSW student and a current doctoral student at the School of Social Work as well, getting my doctorate in social work. So I can take all my clinical experience, but also blend that with our Christian faith to give you a biblically-based yet clinically sound perspective uh, on anxiety. Now, some of you here are my former Rutgers students. I know I saw some of you earlier today. Now, some of you have heard this material before, so you just have to bear with me. If you sat in my lectures, you've sat in my lectures, so you know some of my personal stories. Just bear with me as you hear some of those portions. But anxiety is one of the most basic, common human experiences. If you're just talking about a general definition of anxiety, it would be a feeling of worry or nervousness or unease, typically about an imminent event or something with an uncertain future. Now, with that definition, all of us have had anxiety and experienced anxiety to one degree or another. But when you talk about clinical anxiety, though, clinical anxiety is a little different because you're talking about an anxiety that changes to an intense, excessive, and persistent worry and fear about everyday situations. And unfortunately, clinical anxiety is one of the most common disorders that are found here in the United States. In fact, over 40 million people in this country suffer from some type of anxiety disorder. And yet, with 40 million people suffering from the disorder, only about 25% of them actually go get help and seek treatment. And there's a couple different reasons for that. One is what we call the avoidant strategies. If I just avoid my anxiety, I just hope and pray it goes away. If I just avoid that situation or avoid that bridge or avoid that height or avoid that particular environment, my anxiety will go away. And what we've learned from the research is that the more you avoid it, the worse it gets, not the better. The second reason people struggle with going to get help is that anxiety is often tied to stress. So that means the anxiety, what we call in the research, waxes and wanes. It comes and it goes. Have, have, how many of you have noticed that your levels of anxiety increase when your stress increases? The more stress you are, the more anxiety you have. The less stress you are, the less anxiety you have. And so when the stresses go away, we think, okay, I'm good. I don't have to worry about anxiety anymore. I don't address it. I don't have to talk about it. Don't need to go maybe see somebody about it because I feel good. Only for it to come roaring back some moments later when the stress increases. The third reason is that we self-medicate. Right? It's so much easier to drink alcohol or get high or do something to take the pain away. It's what we call self-medicating. Now, you may have your own concerns or your own perspectives about a glass of wine, right? That's different than I need a glass of wine to calm my nerves. Difference to have a glass of wine at a meal, at a dinner, right, with friends for the enjoyment of the experience. It's another thing to say, in order for me to handle this social environment, I need a couple of drinks in me. That's self-medicating. There's a difference, right? And the fourth is just the stigma. I don't want to go talk to somebody about this particular concern because then you might give me a diagnosis. And I don't want the diagnosis because I don't want the stigma of being known as being mentally ill, so I just don't want to go get the help. 
And oftentimes, many people really genuinely need the help, need the diagnosis, because with that diagnosis comes the type of treatment models that we could provide that would help you. But I'm so terrified of the stigma that I just don't want to go. And I'm sure all of us can attest to using one or four, one, two, or three, or four of those things when anxiety has affected our life. Now, scientists have discovered our brains work in two different ways when it comes to anxiety. Two different ways. There's two different routes the brain takes when it comes to addressing anxiety. The first one's known as the shortcut. The shortcut. That's when, when we're startled, the brain automatically engages the amygdala. That's the part of your brain where your fear center is located. And when that happens, there's a rapid heartbeat, there's sweating, there's an increase in blood pressure. Right? We've all had that startled experience. Something comes upon us that we did not expect, and you have the rapid heartbeat, the sweating, and all that comes with the anxiety. A couple of years ago, I was in Arizona with my dad visiting him. And in Arizona, there's a bunch of different mountains and trails that you can go on. And so I was going through the trails, uh, hiking through the hills and the valleys. I got to the very end of the valley. I was all by myself. I kind of left my dad and went ahead a little bit further. But I had drunk a lot of water. And I really had to go to the bathroom. And I was in the middle of the desert, and no one was around, so I did what I had to do. And then I turned and said, well, let me try to run back up the mountain and find my dad, and then we'll reconnect. As I began to ram back up the mountain, about 15 yards ahead of me, a mountain lion crossed the trail. And the shortcut immediately happened. I was immediately flooded with anxiety and fear and nervousness. The heart was pounding, sweating. I was frozen, right, not knowing do I fight or do I flee, right? I didn't have nothing to fight with other than a cell phone, and there was no fleeing because I'm in the middle of the desert. So I was frozen in time. In fact, when I tell you that story, the hairs on the back of my neck will still stand up because I realized how close I was that being in a fight with a mountain lion and probably losing. But obviously, I made it back to my dad and made it back to New Jersey, and I'm with all of you today. And the great thing is there are no mountain lions roaming the streets of New Brunswick. So that experience doesn't affect me day to day. However, had I lived in Arizona, where seeing another mountain lion would have been very a, a realistic concern, that could have led to a whole other host of problems for me. So sometimes the shortcut startles you, this intense experience. But then it's paired with something that you have to do over and over and over again. And where you did not have anxiety, you now have it. The shortcut. The second route is known as the high road. The high road. That's when we get time to analyze the events that are unfolding around us. The brain kind of works through the prefrontal cortex, which is right here. It's the front part of your brain that talks about all of your cognitive processing, how you make decisions, how you think, how you rationalize. Your employer hires you for the prefrontal cortex, right? And then it moves back to the thalamus, and then it gets back to the amygdala, the fear center. It gets time to analyze the information, gather all the necessary information, and figure out, should I or should I not be afraid? Should I or should I not be anxious? Gives me time to process all the information out. And when, we, when the brain finally realizes this is something you should be afraid of, this is something you need to be anxious of, then the rapid heartbeat comes and the sweating and the ever have your digestion shut down because the longer you thought about something, the worse it got, and you went from being really hungry to now you can't eat at all. 
Some of you remember in school when you had to do a class presentation, you had to public speak in front of your class. You had to get up and do a presentation. You couldn't eat breakfast. You couldn't eat lunch. You couldn't eat until that thing was over. Why? Because your brain had time to think about and go over and over. What could go wrong? How am I going to fail? Are they going to make fun of me? Am I going to be laughed at? What's going to happen? Your brain had time to think about it and think about it and think about it. And the nature of anxiety is when we have time to think about it and process it, it actually gets worse in us. It doesn't get better. Because our brain continues to warp it and shape it, and we catastrophize. That's the word we use in the research. We catastrophize. We, this is the worst possible experience. I'm going to fail this presentation. I'm going to get flunked out of graduate school. I'm not going to have a degree. I'm going to move back with my parents. We catastrophize. You ran the whole story on one presentation. Why? Because your brain had time to think about it. The high road. What we know is that if we have consistent experiences with either the shortcut or the high road, a pervasive sense of anxiety and worry is where we find ourselves. Not an occasional sense of anxiety, which is normative, a pervasive sense where your norm, how you operate, you continuously have anxiety. And unfortunately, those of us who struggle with a disorder, an actual anxiety disorder, our brains have had the time to accumulate and cultivate those experiences over and over and over again. To the point when anxious people are presented with the situation, they tend to overestimate the threat of danger and underestimate their ability to cope with it. How many of you have had that happen? Where I overestimated the threat of danger, and in doing so, I underestimated my ability to cope with it. Now, God has created us in such a way that we are to respond to stress. We are to respond to fear. We are to respond to danger with anxiety. Because the anxiety alerts us to something that we need to pay attention to for our own safety, our own security. I tell my students all the time when we go over the syllabus and they find out you have to do so many papers, you got an exam coming up. I said, that anxiety you have about the exam, that's a good anxiety. Because that means you will put down the remote, turn off law and order, and you'll study for the test. If you didn't have any anxiety about the test, you wouldn't study. But because you want to do well and you want to succeed, that anxiety is prompting you to do something, respond to a threat. So our anxiety, though, can move from being normative and necessary to damaging and dysfunctional. And it becomes damaging and dysfunctional when it strips us of our problem-solving ability. That's one of the main features of a lot of the anxiety disorders, that when you get really, really anxious and really nervous, your problem-solving ability gets taken away. And all we do is ruminate, meaning think over and over and over again about what could go wrong, what's going to happen wrong, what's not going to work out, what don't I have. We just ruminate on it over and over and over again, and it actually intensifies and gets worse. Right? The, it, it removes our problem-solving ability. It becomes all-consuming. It, it robs us of our trust in God. It robs us of our faith in God. It's an issue that has to be addressed. Now, since God created our bodies, and he knew that anxiety was going to be a part of our life, the Bible has a lot to say about anxiety, and a whole lot to say about its opposite emotion or experience, and that is peace. If you just did a quick word search in the Bible and you just looked up how many times is the word anxiety mentioned in the Bible, you'd find it's roughly, depending on the translation you use, 45 times. If you looked up worry, it's trans it comes up at least 85 times, depending on the translation. 
But if you checked out fear, which is often associated with anxiety and worry, you checked out fear. Now, that number moves to 2,191 times the Bible talks about fear. But if you did another search and looked at how many times does the Bible talk about peace, you'd find it mentions it 1,746 times, again, depending on the translation. So clearly, if we needed a resource to help us understand this complex emotion between anxiety and fear, if we needed a resource that adequately and thoroughly talked about it, I would submit to you the Bible is a really good source. So here are some classic verses when it comes to anxiety. Psalms 94 verse 19 says, When anxiety was great within me, your consolation brought me joy. See, the psalmist is writing at a time where his enemy is attacking him, and he's fearful for his life. How many of you know when you've been attacked, your anxiety goes up? That my anxiety is often, is often attack-driven. When I feel attacked, when I feel under pressure, when I feel as though I'm going to be criticized or scrutinized in some particular way, or even maybe physically attacked, my anxiety goes up. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 25 says, Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. How many of you have had the experience where you were talking to your friend, your loved one, your mom, your dad, your spouse, your children, and the words they use calmed your soul and put you at peace? And how many of you have had the experience of who you were talking to that was close to you, their words actually stirred up more anxiety than was present before you even had the conversation. They actually, they actually created more anxiety than you had before. Right? Sometimes our anxiety is not attack-driven. It is relationally driven. Some of you might need to remove some people in your life, and your anxiety would actually go down because of the words that they're speaking into your life. No one here, of course. Ecclesiastes 11.10 says, So then banish anxiety from your heart and cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. This is King Solomon writing. See, King Solomon was like, listen, don't be afraid to chase your dreams, to chase your aspirations. Because if you don't, you're going to be filled with anxiety. Because Solomon would see people who had all kinds of gifts, all kinds of talents, all kinds of abilities, but were doing something with their life that clearly did not match what they were designed to do. How many of you have had occupational anxiety? It wasn't attack-driven. It wasn't relationally driven. But the job I'm in just doesn't fit what I'm supposed to do, and I'm nervous and anxious and irritable and just can't sit still and be right because the setting I'm in doesn't match the gifts and talents. Or worse, it matches my gifts and talents, but I don't feel validated and appreciated for the work that I do. And anxiety goes up. But maybe one of the classic ones is Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 and 27. And Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, about your body or what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Now, where you fall in your belief about Jesus, I think we could all agree Jesus in this verse is speaking truth to us. Because we all know 
no matter how much I worried, it didn't add a single hour to my life. Or reverse it. How many of us have spent, have wasted hours, days, weeks, months, worrying about something we had no control over? How many of us have wasted precious moments of our life worried about something God already took care of? How many of us have worried about something so much to the point that when you had dinner with your family, you were physically present but emotionally and psychologically somewhere else? You're at your kid's basketball game and you should be enjoying the game, but you're too worried about X over here. And it robs you of that experience. Whether you believe in Jesus as Savior or not, I think we can all agree Worrying is not going to add anything to our life. If anything, worry is going to take away more than it's going to add. But all the time that we spent worrying, we could have spent that time trusting, believing. And all the time we spend worrying, goes back to my earlier point, it stripped you of all your problem-solving ability. It made life worse for you, not better. So clearly, we all have to face and address the anxieties in our heart And I can tell you, in your own strength and in my own strength and capacity, we don't have enough power to overcome anxiety. In your own power and your own strength, you don't got enough and neither do I. You just don't. The best I can do is manage my anxiety, not overcome it. This is more philosophical and theologically speaking to you. I don't think in my own strength and my own capacity I can overcome my anxiety all by myself. I just don't have the strength. The best I can do is manage my mess. But I don't think anybody in this room wants to just manage their anxiety, just wants to manage the mess of their life. I think you want to overcome it and move beyond it, to not be defeated by it. More importantly, in the midst of everything going wrong, I'm still at peace. When nothing is right yet I'm still calm. That that is the kind of power and ability that we want. But I submit to you in your own strength and your own capacity, you don't have it. And maybe you can do it temporarily for a week, for a month, maybe a couple weeks. But over the long haul of life, we just don't have the capacity. So how do we get to a point in our life where when everything is going wrong around me, yet I still have peace in my own soul? Well, I'm glad you asked the question. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 and 15 say this. says, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, and for our purposes, the day of evil is when anxiety shows up and worry shows up to overwhelm and overtake your life. When the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after done everything to stand, stand firm with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. With your feet fitted with the readiness that comes with the gospel of peace. See, the Apostle Paul is telling us, in this world, we're going to face things that we are uncertain about. And we got to put on a belt of truth, a breastplate of righteousness, and we need the right shoes. You need the right shoes. It's a day of shoes. Ladies, you got shoes for every occasion. You got shoes for every opportunity, right? We got dress shoes and athletic shoes and formal shoes. We got shoes for every, you got shoes for the beach and you got shoes for the opera. You got shoes for galore. 
Somebody has a lot of shoes over here. <laughs> and Paul's saying there's got to be something on your feet because the day of evil is coming. If you haven't been overwhelmed by anxiety and worry yet, just keep living because it's coming. The day of evil is on its way. And Paul's saying they need something on your feet. Now, why is Paul talking about that? Because in Paul's day, the Roman soldiers had a shoe that was very similar to the type of shoe NFL football players wear. If you're a football player, you wear a cleat, right? And the, the cleat has what? Spikes on the bottom of the shoe. And the purpose of the spike was to give him, the Roman soldier, a sure footing. It was to make sure he, wouldn't, he didn't slip and slide. It kept the Roman soldier mobile, but it also kept him stationary in battle and in conflict. With his cleats on, he wasn't easily knocked over by the enemy. He wasn't easily knocked down. He wasn't easily moved from his place of stability because his feet were firmly planted with his cleats. When we have our feet fitted with the gospel of peace, we have positioned ourselves in such a way that we're not knocked over when the day of evil comes. But how many of you have had the experience of being knocked over by life? Knocked over by circumstances. Knocked over by situations. Knocked over by people. Knocked over by financial loss. Knocked over by a loss of a job. How many of us have had these moments where we were knocked off our feet? And being knocked off of our feet, the result was ever-increasing amounts of anxiety within our soul. The Apostle Paul is saying you got to have the right shoes on. So you might be asking, well, what are these shoes that you're talking about? Well, Paul is saying it's the shoes fitted with the gospel of peace. So then what does peace mean in the Bible? See, biblical peace is calm and tranquility of soul even in the midst of difficult circumstances. That's biblical peace. Calm and tranquility of soul even in the midst of difficult circumstances. Biblical peace is the exact opposite of anxiety and worry. When, nothing's wrong, when nothing is right, I'm still at peace. I'm still calm. Now, it's easy to be calm and don't have any anxiety when everything's going well. In fact, if everything is going well and you have money in the bank and a, and a house to live in and a car to drive and wonderful family and everything is good for you and yet you still have anxiety you can't get rid of, that might speak to a much larger problem like a mental illness that would need to be addressed in a completely different way. But most of us, when everything is good, we don't have any anxiety. But biblical peace says, I am calm on the inside even when there's trouble on the outside. When there's chaos and uncertainty around me, yet I have a peace inside of me. In fact, the Bible calls it a peace that surpasses understanding. It, it surpasses all understanding because considering your situation and what you're going through, you should not be at peace. It doesn't make any sense that you would be at peace, but that's biblical peace. In the midst of all trouble, yet I'm calm on the inside. In fact, this peace is so important that Colossians chapter 3 says, let the peace of God rule in your heart. The word rule in the Greek means to umpire. Any baseball fans? What does an umpire do? The umpire calls balls and strikes, and whatever he calls it, that's what it is. Colossians is saying, let the peace of God make the call in your life. 
Because life is full of decisions and choices. Should I go this way? Should I go that way? Should I trust God? Should I not trust God? Should I do my own thing? Should I read the Bible? Should I not believe the Bible? Let the peace of God make the call. Let it rule. Because this Christian life is such that the peace of God ruling our hearts is supposed to be the operative way we live. It's supposed to be the way we function, the way we roll. We'll have moments of anxiety and peace, I mean anxiety and worry. But the way I normally roll as a Christian is I have this peace that surpasses all understanding. Now, what the way the world wants to offer us and how they want to offer us peace is radically different than the way God does. Radically different. The best way I can illustrate it for you is to give you one last verse, and that is 1 Thessalonians 5.23 that says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The order God operates is through first your spirit, then your soul, then your body. See, God doesn't start with your body and then move to your soul and end up with your spirit. See, that's what the world does. The world wants to give your body peace, telling you that if you just give your body some peace, your soul would be at rest. The world will give you pills and drugs and alcohol and entertainment. The world will tell you, make more money, have a bigger car, go on vacation. Nothing wrong with a bigger car. Nothing wrong with vacation. Nothing wrong with making more money. But the world will tell you that's all you need for an everlasting peace. But how many of you know that kind of peace is only temporary? Because the pills and the drugs, they wear off. The movie that I went to go see for three hours to take my brain off all the anxiety I feel, the movie's going to come to an end, and then we have to, what, face reality all over again. I go on that two-week vacation to the Bahamas, but guess what? The vacation's coming to an end, and you got to come back to what? Reality. It's temporary. It doesn't last forever. And no matter how much money we have, it will not take away the anxiety. Because even if I gave you a million dollars right now and all of your bills are paid and all of your debts are taken care of and all your college, your college education, the college tuition for your children was taken care of, you'd still have anxiety about how am I going to keep all this? What if I blow it all? What if I don't have enough till I get to 65? It, it, you ain't, it ain't not going to solve your problem. I think, Jay -Z, I think it was Jay-Z said, more money, more problems. So no amount of money is going to take away that anxiety. I can't believe I just quoted Jay-Z preaching a sermon. But I'm in a stress factor, so I guess it just, just came out of me. But the God of peace, he first starts with our spirit, then moves to our soul, then moves to our body. See, the spirit, your spirit, that's the part that's connected to God. And by being connected to God, your spirit is perfect. So all of us have God's power operative in our life right now because of our spirit. See, the problem is, though, our perfect spirit is lodged right next to an imperfect soul. And that imperfect soul consists of your mind, your will, your emotions. Our soul is imperfect. Why is it imperfect? Because we've been damaged by trauma and neglect and disappointment, and pain, and difficulty, and loss. This soul is damaged. It ain't perfect. There's things we have to constantly wrestle with and work through. 
And since the soul is imperfect and it's lodged right next to the body, the body does whatever the soul tells it to do. So when the soul has anxiety, the body can't sleep. When the soul has, when it gets anxious, the body externalizes that anxiety. And what do we do? We have angry outbursts. We yell and scream. We go off, we fly off the handle. We curse. We yell. We do stuff with our bodies. Or some of us get so, the soul is so troubled that it causes the body to isolate and move away from people. When what it should do is move closer, it moves away and isolates and draws further back. So God, though, God starts, he does it a different way. He does it a different way because he realizes if your soul is messed up, your soul is not at peace, it's going to impact your body. It's what psychologists call psychosomatic illnesses. The anxiety in here is, is manifested out here. So God's like, no, we're going to do it a different way. We're going to first start with your spirit. And the goal of the spirit is to release the DNA of God into your soul. And when that DNA gets released into your soul, your soul gets transformed and in turn releases what it got from the spirit to your body. And in order for the soul to grab from the spirit, it has to agree with the spirit. Well, what does that mean? What that means is when we've, in this life, when our soul is presented with the facts, and those facts may legitimately be making me anxious. The facts say I don't have any money. The facts say I can't pay my bills. The facts say I'm going to get kicked out of my place. The facts say I've just lost my job. Those are the facts. You stay on the facts long enough, your anxiety is going to go up. But the Spirit doesn't respond to the facts. See, the Spirit responds to the truth, the truth of God's Word. So the fact says, I'm broke. And the Spirit goes over to the truth and says, yeah, but my God said he'll supply all my needs according to his riches and glory. The, 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 the facts say, I've just lost my job. And the Spirit goes over to the Bible and says, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken, nor their seed begging bread. The moment the soul agrees with the Spirit, a release valve is opened up into heaven, and what our soul gets is peace. And the moment our soul starts to worry because of the facts, it's got to run to the Spirit to what does God say about this matter. We don't need to run to the outside world to find peace for our anxiety, for our worry, for our fear. We don't have to start with our body and get what the world offers. Instead, we have to go deeper. What does the Bible have to say about this particular matter? Because all I need is my soul to rub off, this, rub off on this perfect spirit and then my soul becomes at rest, and then I can translate that over to my body. I'm not giving you some pie-in-the-sky theology. This is not a cliche sermon. I fundamentally believe that the power of God is available to us because of his resurrection power. If you've accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then the same power that raised him from the dead, that's the same power that lives on the inside of you. And that's the same power we need to help us to get over anxiety and worry. See, the problem is we go through life and we have legitimate anxiety and worry. And we spend too much time focused on our soul and our body responding that we don't look up and say, I have access to transformative power, presence, and the peace of God. And if I just got my soul connected to my spirit, it would in turn speak to my body and I could sleep. I could rest. I could problem solve. I can make better choices. I can make better decisions. 
Some of you might be saying, but, but, but Pastor Jim, Professor Hart, uh, I'm doing all that, and yet I still have anxiety problems. If that's the case, then that may speak to a neurochemical imbalance in your brain that is not your fault. And we would recommend you take a psychotropic medication to regulate the neurochemicals in your brain. And that is not a contradiction of your faith. Because if you had cancer and I said, well, if you got cancer, well, you shouldn't be nervous about cancer. Why don't you just connect to your spirit and put your soul at rest and your cancer will go away? No, that's foolishness. That's nonsense. No, we would tell the person struggling with cancer, get connected to your spirit so your soul can be at peace, so your body has the, the right way to respond, and then go to chemo. Why? Because faith, in, because faith without works is dead. It's not a contradiction of my faith. If I've done everything the Bible has asked me to do, and yet I still struggle, it could be something biochemical that has nothing to do with you or your faith. And you can take medicine and still have faith, and it's not a contradiction of your life. I remember not too long ago, a couple years ago, I lost a significant amount of money by way of employment. Stuff was taken away, didn't get certain things, and a lot of money that normally was coming in was gone. And on top of that, I had a wife and three kids, and my wife wasn't working. So you can all imagine how you get behind how you can't pay your bills, how you can't pay the mortgage. I remember getting the pre-foreclosure notices in the mail because you missed two mortgage payments, so they send you that little notice that if you don't make a mortgage payment, you'll be in pre-foreclosure. I remember PSE&G knocking on my door saying, sir, if you don't pay this bill right now, we're going to turn your lights off. I know what it's like to have that overwhelming anxiety. Through no fault of my own, just living life and stuff get taken away. I can see if I was a knucklehead, but... I wasn't. It was just life. Life just happens. And I did everything the world told me to do. I called my creditors. I got I started working on a monthly budget. I topped out a retirement account so to pay off that to pay the mortgage payments that were backed off. I did everything the world told me to do. And yet I still had overwhelming anxiety in my soul. I remember driving down Route 27 in Edison. I can remember it like it was yesterday. And it felt like a 100-pound weight was crushing my chest, and I couldn't breathe. Have you ever had that kind of anxiety where you don't know what's happening next? You don't know how you're going to pay your bills. You don't know where the next payment's coming. You don't know what tomorrow brings. That overwhelming weight. I couldn't breathe, couldn't drive. And I realized I had been working in the opposite direction. I had been doing what the world told me to do, hoping it would calm my soul. But I never went back over to what the Bible had to say about my situation. And I'm in church. And I'm, I'm, I'm not only in church, I'm employed by the church. Wasn't a pastor then. But uh, I'm a Christian. But life was so overwhelming that I didn't know what was going to go on. And I had to reverse the order. I had to go back to what the Bible has to say. My God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. And in turn, that put my soul at peace. And in then turned my body into problem solving. And I went from worrying and anxiety filled and all kinds of other issues to looking up and saying, okay, they took that, but they didn't take this. And I still have something in my hand that I can use to make money. 
But for months, I wasn't looking over here. I was only focused on what I didn't have and what was going on. I was doing everything the world says. And I knew I still had problems in my soul because I did what the world says, but I'd come home and I'd check the account and you'd tell me they spent $45 at Target. I'm like, what are you spending $45 at Target for? Don't you know we're trying to make this bunny? How much have we got this budget problem? What are you doing spending money? I already told you this is how much we got. And why are you going to Target again? Why? Because my soul, not my spirit, my soul was still troubled. Even though I did what the world told me to do, I still had trouble. It still was manifesting in my body about how I treated my wife. Now, she's taking care of three boys and me. I don't shop for any, well, I go grocery shopping, but I don't shop for anything else. So you expect her just to, to sit by your beans and rice budget and not provide for three boys? But I couldn't problem solve because my soul was too screwed up. But the moment I got my soul to be connected to my spirit, and I believed and agreed with what God said about the situation, it in turn gave my soul peace, and in turn gave my body the ability to function clearly and move in the right direction. And then in time, the economics came back. In time, the money came back. In time, we got out from under our feet. In time, debtors got paid. In time, and we're still recovering from that moment, even today in 2019, we're still recovering in certain areas. But I'm far better now at peace in my soul. Why? Because I'm not relying on what the world has to offer me. I'm relying on what God has to offer me. I want to pray for you. I want to pray that you don't work from body to soul to spirit, but you work from spirit to soul to then body. God, we are grateful and thankful for these moments. We're thankful for the opportunity that you provide for us. I pray, God, for your people that are here, whether they are a child of yours through salvation or they have yet to come to know salvation, yet they're still a child of yours. And I pray, God, for every person in this room that the anxiety that they feel, that at times is overwhelming, that you would calm every fear, you'd calm every nerve, that the worry that they have been played with, the worry that they wrestle with, that they would take that worry and not try to manage it with their soul, but I pray they take it to the Spirit. They would look at what you have to say about the matter, and they would agree what you, what you have to say. And in turn, I pray that gives their soul peace so that they can problem solve, so that they can do the next best thing, so they can see the provisions and the opportunities and the ways in which you want them to go. I pray, God, they're not so bogged down in anxiety that they don't find rest in you. I pray they're not so bogged down with anxiety that they can't pick their head up and see the direction you want to take them. I pray, God, for every person that's in this room, those who have economic needs, those who have relational needs, those who have housing needs, those who have occupational needs, those who have immigration needs, God, whatever needs they may have, I pray that you would supply. Because we're going to trust and believe your word that says, my God shall supply all of my needs. Not some of my needs, but all of my needs according to his riches, according to your riches and glory. And you have more than enough supply for every single one of us. And I pray that they'd come to faith and trust in you first and foremost, and that everything else would fall in line. We pray, God, for those who are struggling with a legitimate mental illness. We pray, God, that you would regulate the neurotransmitters in their brain, whether that's increasing dopamine or taking down some serotonin. You know how their brains operate, and so we pray that you would regulate their brains. And we pray, God, that they would not have shame or embarrassment about taking medication while they wait for their healing from you. 
We pray that you remove all stigma and all shame and all guilt about addressing a legitimate mental health illness. And I pray you surround them with the right people at the right time that can nurture them and love them and care for them and give them the appropriate spiritual, psychological, emotional, and relational care that they need so they can find healing and stability for their life. It's in the name that's above every name, Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. Well, thank you for listening to me. Hope and pray it was beneficial to your soul.